Well, good morning. Glad you're here. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Esther. It's in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to be going through the book of Esther over the next several weeks. I'll start the series this week. Mark Johnson will be preaching next week, um, chapter in the next couple of uh, chapters, and um, beginning in our series. And the title of our series is, uh, If It Pleases the King. Now, many times, if you've been around the Bible or you've been around Christianity, whenever the book of Esther is talked about, they always use the verse that says, for such a time as this, for such a time as this. Like, that's kind of the, the normal theme of the book of Esther. Um, and, and as I kind of read through the book and, and looked over the book, it was amazing to me how this phrase, if it pleases the king, came up over and over and over again in the book. And it was kind of like, wow, like that, that everyone's concerned about pleasing the king. And while, yes, Esther, we're going to find out about Esther's life and how God and his sovereignty and his ability to, to make and order things placed Esther where she was for such a time, for such a moment as that, you know, really for all of us, our moment is when we're alive. It's not like Esther has an, any better of a moment than you have or any better of a moment than I have. We've been given life, we've been given breath, we've been given a moment on this earth. And if you really think about it, it is, it is only a moment. The scriptures say that our life is like a vapor, just gone. If you think of all of human history, if you think of all of just history, back, and you think about your life, your little dot on the timeline of eternity, it's, it's just so insignificant, so it seems. And the story of Esther is one that in worlds where kings rule, where governments rule, where it feels like sometimes we're powerless, that yes, we have a vote, but does my vote even count? When you're in the midst of that, it's hard to remember that God has a purpose and a plan, and it's hard to remember that he is the ultimate king. That regardless of who sits on the throne in Washington, D.C., or in Russia, or in Cambodia, or wherever you're at, regardless of who sits in power, ultimately, for us that believe in the Bible, we believe that God is on the throne. He doesn't give up his throne. He doesn't step down. He still sits as a reigning king. Does he give permission to people to do things? Yep, kings do. They give permission, and people in the kingdom and beyond the kingdom get permission to do things. And that's what we're going to see as we dive in to this book. And in the first couple of chapters, there's going to be another couple of words you're going to see over and over again. Because what we're dealing with in the book of Esther is a king. Okay, a king. Historically, is it's King Xerxes the first. He is one of the several kings of Babylon. Cyrus destroys the king of Babylon. He's the king of Persia. And when he wins and defeats the king of Babylon, we're going to talk about in a second, then a few kings later we have this king we're talking about in this story. And if, if you can think to yourself, we feel like maybe we're in a time where it's tumultuous, where things are kind of out of control, what is going to happen? You have to remember that when we drop ourselves into the story of Esther, God's people, that would be you and I, are enslaved. They're in slavery. They're under a wicked king in a wicked kingdom. And they're there because God told them, because you haven't obeyed me, I'm going to have to give you Someone else to rule you, to get your attention, to get you to cry out to me. Because if I just keep giving you blessing, you don't feel any sense of urgency. No sense of reminder that I'm on the throne and then you just use whatever's around you for your own purposes. And nowhere is this more evident how wicked this king is when we're going to see in a moment in Esther. Because the, today's title of the sermon is Young Women. Because what we find is with this king that we're going to read about, this Persian king, what pleases him is young women. Hasn't changed much. How many politicians have, do you know that have been taken down by young women? Hasn't changed much in a few thousand years. See, God has some things to say about how we do relationships. He has some things to say about how he orders the heavens and how he wants us to, to order our lives where we find ourselves. And with his people, he's here and this wicked king. And so when we look at this story and we look at Esther, it's going to amaze you that a young woman would put up with what Esther put up with, puts up with. 
It's going to amaze you that, oh my goodness, that this young woman, Esther, would be willing to be raped. Because that's what happens. She's taken advantage of. She's forced into a beauty pageant, not of her choosing. And yet, God still uses all of this to show us that he's still in control even when we think things are completely out of control. And even in the midst of young women being abused and used, and we're going to see another young woman or a woman who refuses to listen to the king, God is still on the throne. So here we go, Esther 1. These events took place during the days of... Oh, I have this written down. Hold on, I'm not going to mispronounce it. Ahasuerus. Okay, Ahasuerus, Xerxes I, king of Persia, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. This was a huge empire. The Persian Empire was massive, if you do your history. Massive. At one point, they controlled a fifth of the world's landmass. A fifth. That's crazy when you think about they didn't even know America existed <laughs> at this point. They didn't even know there was a North America. Like, it's amazing how much the Persians... Handled, And then it says, in those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and, the, and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent, <laughs> magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So he's having a party. He's showing how great he is. He's showing off as a king. This is what leaders often do. They want to show off. Look at what I've done. Look at my record. You want me to be your king. Aren't I so awesome? Everyone needs to submit to me. And, and really doing this is kind of smart because it, it gets all the kingdoms to kind of like him. Wow, we're having a party. We, he's throwing a party. He's using his resources, even though most of what he's spending was resources he took from them and taxed them for, right? Isn't that so frustrating? Right, when you see all these, oh, that's wonderful, you know, free this. Wait, where did that money come from? Oh, yeah, it came from us. It's not free. There's nothing free. And so you have to remember that even in the midst of this grand party, there would have been people who would have been a little upset. So, so we're having this big party, but it's my wealth, it's my money, it's my kids who don't have food. And you're throwing this lavish party for those that you want to be there. See, things haven't changed. Humanity hasn't changed. It, is it a little different now than it was then? Yeah, it's a little different, but the hearts of men are still the same. The hearts of men still want what they want. It goes on and it says this, or I'm sorry, and, and, and as you look at where this is at, this huge party, you have to remember what God's people were told when they went into captivity. If you remember, there was a northern and southern kingdom. Both of them acted wickedly. The northern kingdom more wickedly than the southern. The northern kingdom was taken out first. Okay, They were taken out by Assyria and it was wicked and awful and they were slaughtered and it was horrible. That should have gotten the attention of the southern kingdom to repent to God, to cry out to him, to say, you're our king. We're so sorry we ever chose a king. We're so sorry we're in this mess. They didn't. They got prideful. And that's what we do. We annihilate someone else and we don't feel humble about it. We get prideful about it. And we say, let's, let's get somebody else and let's, do, let's get some, I'm awesome. And that's exactly what Judah did. And God kept warning them and saying, you're not awesome. I'm awesome, you're not. You need to repent. You're doing wicked things. You're not listening to my laws. You're treating people badly. You're not obeying what I've asked you to do. And as a result, I'm going to send a king who will overthrow you. And he sends the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He sends Babylon in to punish his people. And he says, if you'll surrender to Babylon, you'll survive, you'll have a, you'll have a, a decent life, you'll, you'll be able to survive and have children and do things, and then in 70 years, I'll restore you back to the land. I'll bring you back to the land where I took you out of when Babylon came in. But if you don't surrender to Babylon, you're all going to be slaughtered. Those who don't surrender, it is going to be awful for you. Horrible. Again, I've said this before, but can you imagine one of our leaders, one of our People, prophets, so to speak, of our day, getting up and saying, we need to just surrender to Russia. It's what God wants. 
That's where God's people are finding themselves. The king of Babylon has overthrown them. And then God told the king of Babylon, because of your wickedness and the way you treated my people, I gave you permission. You thought you could do whatever you want. I didn't tell you you could do whatever you want. I didn't say you could slaughter them, but I knew it was going to happen. I let you do it anyway. So he told the king of Babylon, you're going to be slaughtered. You're going to be defeated because of what you did to my people. And that's exactly where we find ourselves in this story. Persia has overthrown the Babylonians. Babylonians because of God's promise and God warned warned the people through the prophets of the Old Testament that all this was going to happen there there are hundreds of prophecies that that got fulfilled that were like wow that he warned them and told them and wrote it down hundreds of years in advance and this is where we find ourselves dropped into this story and here's what God told his people when they were going to go into captivity here's what he told Esther Mordecai we're going to find in the story. Here's what he told all these believers that were living in this mess of a Persian empire where they were just slaves. They were nothing. Here's what God told them in Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah said this. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, the ones that went, the ones that were exiled. They said, I'll just surrender. I'll, I'll go. He says, build houses and live in them. In a foreign land. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there in your captivity. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city. Of the Babylonians? Seek the welfare of these terrible... Yep. I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity, you will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. See, the, divin, the, the, the prophets and diviners of, of Israel were telling them, peace, peace, everything's going to be okay. It's all going to work out fine. God loves us. He thinks we're awesome. He won't let any other nation hurt us because we're so cool. That's what they believed. That's what these false prophets were saying. And, when, and God said, they're lying to you. That's not the way the world works. It's a broken place. And, and, and he tells them, pray for the benefit of the city and, and love them and serve them. Really? That's hard. I know. But see, if we recognize that this isn't our kingdom, Babylon doesn't have their kingdom, Persia doesn't have their kingdom, I don't have an American kingdom, a United States kingdom, if I realize that it's all God's kingdom, this is a piece of cake. Because this isn't my home. This isn't my king. He's just my earthly king. I have to, like work with while I wait for God to come and establish his kingdom fully you see and so he looks to Jeremiah and he says here's what you need to do you're getting ready to be 70 years that means everybody who heard this message would be dead they would probably they would never almost everyone would never see the promise of this message because if you're one in 70 years you're 71 you really don't understand it one year old what's being said to you and this actually happens. It's why you have the book of Ezra where the temple was rebuilt and the book of Nehemiah where the walls are rebuilt and Esther's kind of somewhere in there, in that story of when they're being restored and the mess that's going on. That's where we find ourselves. So you think you might have it bad. You think we might be in crisis and our world's in trouble and our nation's in trouble. Goodness gracious, that's nothing compared to where God's people are finding himself in this story. And here's the verse everybody likes. From Jeremiah 29. They love to put this one on their bathroom wall. They love to put this one everywhere. But they don't like to read what we just read before it. Which is this verse I'm giving you applies to the next 70 years of slavery you're going to live in. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declarations. Plans for your welfare, not your disaster. To give you a future and a hope. And you go, oh, I love that verse. Again, if you're 20 years old and you're hearing him Jeremiah prophesied this verse, and you do the math, 20 plus 70, is I'm dead. I am never going to see 
a plan for my welfare. I am never going to see a future and a hope. All I'm going to see is disaster. See, God's a genius. Because here's what he says. You're right. It may not work out well for you. But are you willing to have faith for the next generation? Are you willing to give your life for those who come after you? Is it worth it to point them to something bigger than yourself? Or do you have to have it for you right now and name it, claim it, I'll get mine? And if that's your heart, you don't understand the God of our book. You don't understand. We can make our requests known to God. He asks us to make our requests known. But sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says Wait, but you want to know what he always says? If we know Jesus, if we're surrendered to him, if we have him as our Lord and Savior and Master, God always says yes later in heaven. We will have every yes. If you're sick and you've prayed, God, I don't want to be sick, I guarantee you you're going to be healed someday. I promise. The scripture's clear. When you get to heaven, you get a new body, won't ever get sick again. You're, it's already answered yes, just not yet. You got, a, you got a marriage, you struggle in marriage to love and to do the right thing and all that. that yeah, someday you're going to be in heaven. Guess what? You're going to have a perfect marriage to God, to the bride, the bride and the, and the lamb. This earthly marriage you're stuck in, it's hard, it's, it's hard to work through. That's just a picture of what you believe about God's authority and the marriage you'll be at one day. See, all of what we do is just simply a small picture. Look at what Paul says. He says, so I discover this principle. When Paul's writing in Romans 7, and he's talking about the struggle of sin, I call it the do-do passage. Because he's talking about what I want to do, I don't do, and then I do want to do, and I don't do. And he's, it's just a bunch of do-do. Like, it, seriously, when you read through it. And he gets to this part, and he says, because of this struggle I have, I want to do the right thing, but I don't, I've discovered a principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is within me. For my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. Yeah, what God says is great. I agree with Jeremiah 29. But then I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and take me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. In other words, there's this war, there's this mind that says, I know what God said. I know how I'm supposed to live. I know what he said, but boy, I want to ascend to the throne. I need a little bit of throne time. It's time for me to get mine. And he said, there, there's a war going on in my heart for who's on the throne in my heart. Who will be king? And he goes on and he says, what a wretched man I am. If you've never come to the place where you recognize what a wretched man you are, you don't know who God is. Because when we stand before a holy, awesome God, there's nothing else we can do but go, oh, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But then he says, who will rescue me from this dying body? Paul says, look, I'm captive in this body. I'm so tired of this body. It aches. It hurts. It has to be fed all the time. It gets tired. Like, this body's killing me. <laughs> right? Paul says, who can rescue me? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. That is, Yahweh, who is the Messiah, our Lord, so then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. He's like, I am in this battle. Look, that's the battle Esther finds herself in. That's the battle that God's people have found themselves in for all eternity. It's this battle of will I truly submit to God being my king and whatever rulers are in power, I got to figure out how to work with that or will I try to get to the throne? That's the message. Here's what happens. There's a big party. At the end of this time, the king had a week-long banquet in the garden of the courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. So he opens it up to everybody who's in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns, gold and silver couches. Couches. Gold couches. <laughs> How heavy was that? Anyway, and, on, and he says, he goes, arranged on a mosaic pavement of red, feldspur, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Beverage were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and no restraint was placed on the drinking. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as each person wanted. This is like an IU party that no one can compare with. 
Like you hear about this party at IU, like the whole freshman class is showing up. Like, like this, this is no comparison because this guy's just, he's trying to, to show off. He's trying to show off how great he is. He's trying to show off how wonderful he is. And he's trying to kind of keep people happy at the same point. Never mind the fact that he had a kingdom, when you read history, that was really mad because of how many taxes he had levied to be able to do all this stuff in his new palace in Susa. Goes on and it says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Xerxes' palace. Okay? So, so she's giving it, well, I'm going to do something for the women. Like, the men have their party, I'll, I'll do one. On the seventh day when the king was feeling good from the wine, of course he was, he's been drinking for seven days. Okay? He commanded the human, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him. You know what a eunuch is, right? That's someone who had their privates cut off. It's a man who had his privates cut off. That's a eunuch. None of these guys chose that. These men were made eunuchs probably forcibly. Slaves. This is not a great king. This is a guy who uses people, and the reason these guys are eunuchs is because if they're going to hang out with the king's young women, he doesn't want any competition. He goes on and it says, to bring Queen Vashti, he says, bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. He doesn't care about her, just wants to show off. See, this is the kings of our world. The kings of our world really don't care about people most of the time. They really don't. They might say they do. They might do enough caring to stay in power. But if the kings of this world really cared about people, according to the scripture, they would call them to repentance. And that is not a popular message. When you call people to repentance, they don't cheer and revote for you. They kick you out. When you say you're doing wrong and it needs to stop, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences, it's like, we got to vote that guy out quick. He's nuts. Whoever the king is, whether it's, it doesn't matter what kind of political background they are. It doesn't matter. And it goes on and it says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. That's what we have today. We have cabinets and experts that tell us about the law and the Supreme Court and books and books. He's, he confers with them because he is so angry and here's the deal. He wants to kill her at this moment. He has the right probably to kill her if he wanted to. But because he's a ruler that's concerned about his power, he needs to be careful who he kills and how he kills them. He's got to be careful how he handles this because he knows the optics aren't good. This is like a modern political story. It's no different than today. And Vashti says, I'm not coming to you. You're drunk out of your mind. You want to, permit, you want to parade me a bunch of, a front of, a bunch of front of men. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm not coming to you right now. You're not ready to handle me. Goes on, the most, most trusted ones were Karshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memucan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions of the kingdom. So their names are called out. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey the king? It was delivered by the eunuchs, the command. What do we do now? Because we're, we're in a quandary. This can't go on. You can't just not obey authority without consequences. See, we live in a world that says, I should be able to do whatever I want without consequence. That doesn't work. That's devastating. It destroys cultures when you live like that. There are consequences to the decisions we make, both good and bad. And it goes on and it says... Memucan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Azur's provinces. 
For as the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Asuras ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. He goes on and he says, Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it, may, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ashurus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memucan's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. This is such a good political maneuver. It is. Not saying it's godly, just saying it's political. This is a political mover, maneuver that he's trying to figure out, how do, I, how do I make this so that the optics all look good? He's laying this out and he's saying, and listen, the counselors aren't wrong. They understand that if the king isn't submitted to, then there's anarchy. See, one of the mistakes we have made over and over again as the United States of America, as we have gone out and waged war and we have gotten involved in conflicts around the world, is that we assume that people have the same values we have and that they'll want the same values we have. And they don't. They don't. So when we go into some place and we assume that and we blow up their government, you know what happens? It's chaos. Because many times the places we go to have a religion that doesn't teach the principles we teach. Their religion doesn't teach freedom. And yet we're trying to get them to believe in freedom. No. It doesn't work. You see, we take for granted the history, the foundation that was laid, and it's easy to take for granted things. And this king took Vashti for granted. He took the fa he is going through and he's saying, here's what we're going to do. Now, before you get too angry with this king, our Bible talks about some of these same principles and the dangers we have to be careful of when we begin to overstep our bounds of authority. When we begin to go beyond who we're supposed to be, Titus says it this way, but you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. This is Paul writing to a young Titus, a leader in the church. He's trying to prepare him on how to be a good leader in God's church. Older men are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In other words, teach them not to just want another young woman. In everything, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. This is exactly what God told the people when they were going to be exiled into Babylon. He said, what? These good works you're going to do in this slave nation that you're in. These are hard teachings that most people, and to be honest with you, I talked to the staff team as we were setting up and people who were here setting up this morning. I thought we'd preach Esther and it'd be an easy, like, hey, we'll go through the story. This will be great. And I have struggled through this book. Because there are principles in this book that, quite honestly, we just don't want to talk about or deal with. It's just hard. It's messy. And, he, and Titus brings this out. This is the New Testament. This isn't old stuff. And he says, look, here it comes. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. In other words... They might say something bad about the message, but hopefully because of your actions, the way you've lived your life, where you're at, they don't have any other accusation against you. They just hate the message. And then it goes on. It says, slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not taking back ten, 
or not taking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. That's a hard teaching. We had slavery in this country and we enslaved people and treated them like dirt because we weren't good masters. We were terrible people who used and abused people. It's Black History Month. We didn't treat them where God says masters are to treat their slaves like sons and daughters. That's what God says in his word. And we didn't do that because everybody's out to be on their own throne to get at the top. Then it says, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. In other words, Titus says, here's these teachings. And the reason we can do these things, even though they're hard, old men, young men, young women, for the grace of God has appeared for salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. That applies to Esther's day. That applies to 1700s. That applies to now. What present day do you live in? And how do you live for God on the throne in the day you live in? Then he goes on and he says, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what the people in the Old Testament were waiting on. They were waiting on the hope. Remember, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope. We're in the same boat now. We're held captive in this earth, captive. We're, we're, and God says there's going to come a day when that's done, but it's but it's on my time. And then he says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. In other words, are you a person that lives where you live and you're eager to say, how can I serve those that are in authority? How can I serve those around me? How can I give my life? That is not the message we hear today. It's what do you deserve? What are you entitled to? Not how much more can I give? And that's a message I struggle with. Then he goes on and he says, say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Titus. In other words, there are going to be people who won't listen to this. They don't want to deal with the hard truths that are here. And I'm telling you, you've got to stand up for it. Esther 2, the story picks up. It says sometime later when King Azurus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. We don't know if he remembered and he was sad or if he remembered and he was, we, we don't know. We know that Vashti lived. He didn't kill her. That's mercy when he could have. And then it says, the king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young women for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so they may assemble all the beautiful young women to the harem at the fortress of Susan. This is not optional. They're going to go into cities. They're going to look around. They're going to go door to door and they're going to find beautiful women. They're going to tie them up and take them to the king. If you are a beautiful woman in this day, you don't want to be beautiful at this moment. You don't want beauty at this moment because you know what's getting ready to happen. You're going to be raped. It's going to go badly. And here's the deal. Not only is that going to happen, not only are you going to be raped, but only one queen gets picked. And if you're not her, you're useless the rest of your life. No man wants you. You've been used. Matter of fact, you're still possession of the king, so he can call you back to get you whenever you want. Look at what the next part says. Put them under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch. Again, another eunuch who is in charge of the women and give them the required beauty treatments. I'm going to find beauty and then I'm, not going to, I'm going to say you're not beautiful enough and now we're going to actually do plastic surgery on you and beauty you up and do treatments on you because you're not worthy. You're not good enough yet even though you're pretty. He goes on and it says, then the young woman who pleases the king will become the young woman who pleases the king the most will become queen instead of Ashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Of course it pleased the king. I'm going to be able to have sex with whoever I want for as many times as I want. For how long? I'm good. Let's do that. That's a great idea. This is horrible. But this is our world that we live in. It's a broken place. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jar son of Shimni, 
son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. This is going back to the story I told you before. They're telling you who Mordecai is. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadashas, that is Esther, because she didn't have a father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. I love that the Bible's just honest. Just tells you like it is. It doesn't, it doesn't mince words. And then it says, when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. Picture this scene. This is a young orphan girl. She has grown up with nothing. She's struggled and Mordecai has taken her in and loved her and shown her what, what a man should be, what a caring, loving father should be when he didn't have to. He takes her in and this is what happens. When the king's command in Egypt became public knowledge, many young women gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's care. Listen, there are some young women, they're going to come without the king asking because they want maybe what the king's got. We see that today. Women use their beauty as a tool to try to get what they want, and it always ends in disaster. It ends in misery and loneliness because all these women think, maybe I can be queen. They're selling out. They're buying their lottery ticket thinking, I'm going to win, and we find out very shortly that none of these women win. They just sold themselves out. And it says, Esther was also taken to the palace and placed under the care of Haggai who was in charge of the women. She was taken. Imagine being Mordecai. You bring in this orphan Esther. You have loved her. You think of her mom and dad and you're just like, man, I just hope I serve her well. I hope I take care of her well. I mean, we, we had our niece come and live with us four years. And so I can feel what Mordecai's feeling. And all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and they're like, she's ours. See ya. And you know what's getting ready to happen to her. And there's nothing you can do. There's no law to appeal to because the law has been written that this is what the king wants. This is what the king gets. Esther was also taken. The young woman, the young women pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. She couldn't even eat the food she was supposed to eat as a Jew probably, or maybe the special diet is that she got treatment to be able to eat. We don't know, but every aspect of her life is being controlled. She has zero freedom. If you found yourself here, what would be your reaction? Because the rest of the story is really critical because what Esther and Mordecai do is just unheard of. It's not what people do. And it goes on and it says, he assigned seven hand-picked female servants to Esther from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther is somehow finding favor. Why? She's listening. She's obeying. What do you want me to do? How do I do this? She's not sitting in misery and thinking, I've been taken from my family. I just don't know what I'm going to do. Just... No, nope, this is my lot in life. I'm stuck. I've got to make the best of what I have. I have to make the best of where I'm at. I didn't want this. I didn't choose this. I, I'm in a mess. I, I, I'm here. This is where I'm at right now. See, if we can learn that from Esther, that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we, we can be people who find favor the best we can. It goes on and it says this. Esther did not reveal her ethnic background or her birthplace because Mordecai had ordered her not to. Mordecai is scared that if they find out she's a Jew, it's going to go badly. So for whatever reason, they hide it. You know, we do the same thing. So often as Christians, we can hide that we believe what we believe because we know the consequences of being found out may be too great. We try to hide it. We don't want people to know. You know what's amazing is that even in the midst of us doing stupid things like that, God still can work. He still works. He still forgives. He still uses. And it says, look at this. Because Mordecai had ordered her every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. 
what a caring father. What a caring man. That I, I'll take a walk and see if I can just see Esther today, if I can get some information on how she's doing. Because nobody has access to the king's women, the young women of the king. And Mordecai is taking some risks here to find out what's really happening. Someone could report him and say, hey, Mordecai's asking about this Esther. Lord's uh, like, I've got to find out. It goes on and it says this. During the year before each woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus. During the year. A year. This wasn't you got taken away and a week later the king slept with you, raped you, and then you... A year of anticipation of knowing what's coming, knowing that you're going to be used, knowing what's going to happen. And it says, to the harem regulation required to receive her beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. I mean, you're just a piece of meat. Then it says, when the young women would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. They gave her one request. How, how, one, how nice. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of Shagaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Because now you're in the used harem. goes on and it says this, Esther was the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai who was adopted, who adopted her as her own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, look at this, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's trusted official in charge of the harem, suggested. Probably all the other women were trying to figure out and ask the other ladies, what did you take and what did you do? And Well, you didn't get selected, so I'm going to take this and maybe he'll like me better and all this stuff. And Esther just says, what do you think would please the king? A man that's getting ready to do something that I never bought in to do. I... The incredible faith to live through this and not throw yourself off a building or kill yourself in the midst of this. I have, I, I, I don't, this is amazing to me. And then it says, Esther won approval in the sight of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the royal palace in the 10th month, the 10th month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other young women. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. What just happened? Holy smokes. You talk about making the best of a worse situation. Esther is so pleasing to the king she, that it affects everyone else. Can I just tell you that we, when we understand that when we please our heavenly king, that it affects everyone around us and how it can impact people, that is beautiful. What a humble woman. I, have, I don't even know how to describe her. I don't know how to, this is amazing. And it says he quit taxing people. Nobody does that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Everyone was mad about the taxes. Now there's no taxes because of Esther. Esther could have been bitter. 
angry, furious. I'm not doing that. I don't care. He can kill me if he wants to. She could have built up all this and instead she trusted her God and believed what Jeremiah said, that if you live for God, if you trust him, if you come under and you seek the welfare of the leaders and the people around you, it doesn't mean you don't stand for what's right or what's true. I'm not talking about that. She's getting ready to stand up for what's right and true in just a moment. She's struggling in this moment. You may be struggling in this moment, but can I tell you, God's going to use it and work it out for his good and for his glory, for other people, for a kingdom that you don't even understand fully. That's our book. It goes on and it says, 1 Peter 3 says it this way in the New Testament. In the same way, wives, submit to your own husbands, so that even if some, some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent lives, your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what's inside the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very very valuable in God's eyes. That was Esther. Esther was beautiful on the inside, but when she went to the king and when she entered in, the king recognized this woman's different. There's a lot of other pretty people. There's a lot of other pretty girls. There's going to be another pretty girl that walks through the door, but there's something different about this one. There's something different that she wants to... That's it. He goes on to say this. For in the past, Esther... The past. Holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Abraham was an idiot. Abraham lied twice and told people Sarah was his sister because he was afraid of getting caught. He was afraid of something happening. He was trying to protect his throne and his kingdom, and he took his young woman, his wife Sarah, and said, oh, she's just my sister. And the two kings almost slept with her and brought a curse on their nation, and they, because the nation got sick and there were curses that came, Abraham fessed up. And they're like, what did you do this? Why did you lie to us? Well, I was afraid. Esther's going into this with no fear. Whatever happens, happens. I'm going to obey my God. I'm going to do what he's asked to do. I'm walking through this because this is what is in front of me. Wow. And then he says, look, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Because remember, Abraham was scared to death. All these other women are scared they're not going to get it right. And Esther's just like, I'm at the mercy of the king goes on and it says this. When the young women were assembled together for a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still had not received her birthplace or revealed her birthplace or her ethnic background as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. There it is. It's not an accident that when Esther gets put in this situation, she's looking for how to be a servant. She's been doing it for Mordecai. She had every right to be bitter. She was an orphan. She had every right to blame God for her circumstances and the mess she was in. And she had to be in this. And Esther is this woman who just says, I just want to do what God wants. What, what do you need me to do? How do you want me to serve? And listen, this isn't just for young women. This is for men too. Do you have a heart, like the scriptures say, as a man who would lay down his life for his wife? like Jesus did for his bride, the church. That you try to outdo one another, outserve one another, the Bible says, in showing love. Sometimes love is truthful. It goes on. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithen and Teresa, two eunuchs who guarded the king's entrance, became infuri infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Pause for a moment. This is Mordecai's chance to get the king back. You took my Esther, who was an orphan, who loved me and cared for me, and you used her. And I know she's king, or she's queen, but this is my, Mordecai, this is, oh, yeah, you, you get him. How can I help? As a matter of fact, I could probably get a message to Esther if you want me to, and we can help you do this thing. We can help you get it. 
When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to the queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. You need to tell the king his life's in jeopardy. What? Yeah, because remember in Jeremiah, God told us that we're supposed to be here, we're supposed to serve, we're supposed to, like I'm, I'm just, you need to tell him. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows, and this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. All of a sudden, God raises up a young woman, Esther, from a wicked king who's just looking to use young women, and this young woman is actually causing political world events to change. This is incredible when you look at this story of just a, a person who's just a servant. Romans 13 says it this way, this way when Paul's writing to the church in Rome. Remember, the church in Rome, the church was being persecuted by Rome. God's people were not in a good place under the rule of the Roman Empire. They were being slaughtered by Diocletian, by Nero, the rulers of, of, of Rome. And this is what Paul writes, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath. In other words, don't just be afraid. We just read where Peter's, in Titus, don't be just afraid. Don't walk around in fear, Peter said, like Abraham did. Don't just be afraid. No, he says, but also because of your conscience. Because the promise of Jeremiah is still for us today. It's the same promise. I live in a captive body. I'm, I'm captive on this earth until I die and I go be with God and I get a new body and he comes and brings a new earth. And he goes on, he says, therefore you must submit. And for this reason, you pay taxes. <laughs> yes, we do. Since the authorities are God's public servants continually attending to these tax tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those who you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul writes again in Titus 3 later in the book. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, when we got the full clear picture of what God was doing, he says, he saved us. See, that's our message. Our message is, hey, Xerxes, hey, Mordecai, hey, you need to be saved. We all need something outside of us to save ourselves because I don't know if you know it or not, but you're going to die. I am too. Nobody gets out alive. And Peter is looking, or Paul's writing to Titus and he's saying, look, realize that he saved us from this corrupt world. This body we're in is just, it's a temporary, it's a, it's a, tabernacle it's just a tent it's just holding us for a little bit and then we're going to go to him in spirit and be with him and then he says look at this not by works of righteousness that we had done in other words he didn't save us because because we're so good because we're so awesome because no he did it look because of his mercy, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that have, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Esther just became an heir. Probably had very little hope going in. And now she's sitting on the throne, probably a little shocked that a Jewish orphan is sitting on the throne of one of the most powerful empires to ever exist in the world. By terrible circumstances, absolutely terrible circumstances. But that's how all of us are born. We're born in the mess. All of us are. 
Every one of us. And it goes on, it says, this saying is trustworthy. You can trust this. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Devote yourself to doing what's good before God. These are good and profitable for everyone, but look what he says. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Welcome to Politics 101 in the good old U.S. of A. today. Right there. Paul writes and says, I know the tendency is you're going to want to get your king on the throne. You're going to want to argue and dispute and whatever else. I am telling you, don't get caught up in that mess. It doesn't mean you shouldn't cast a vote. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pray and ask why you should cast that vote. By the way, I think you can vote for the Democrats. I think you can vote for someone who, who, who wants abortion. I think you can vote for them. Understanding that when you cast that vote, it's for a curse. It's like voting for Babylon. They're going to come in and slaughter babies. I'm voting for that. That's what God wants. He wants to slaughter more children. I'm good with that. You can cast that vote. You just better be honest while you're casting it and say before God, I'm casting it because I think we need to be cursed. I think we need war to come. I think we need to be judged. So I'm voting for them. Just be honest. And when you vote for the other side, it's not like they're perfect. Right? They're a mess too. You can say, I'm voting for an adulterer who likes young women, who's paid off young women. It's the truth. We live in a mess. Neither, nobody's going to save us but Christ himself. And it says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins being self-condemned. Listen. We live in a world where if I could say who's being lied to the most in our culture today, it's young women. The pressure that young women have on them, the, the, the pressure that's put on them to tell them that they can be anything they want to be and, and all the pressure that's on them and then the way we treat men to give them a pass. Boys will be boys. Baloney. It's got to end. We, we've got to have Esthers and Mordecais. We've got to have people that will stand up for what's true and right. They're not perfect. They won't even tell their heritage. They're struggling now to share their, their faith heritage with people. I get that, but can I just tell you, we need people that will be the people of God that will say, if it pleases the king, Listen, do you even know, are you so concerned with your Bible that you want to know what really pleases him? That you read scripture and as you're reading, you're like, God, how can I please you today? Most of the time, the way we read scripture and we're taught to read scripture, even the way scripture is preached, is here's five easy steps to get yourself the throne you want. You read a passage and say, God, I want that, do that for me. And then the hard part, you skip over it. Yeah, I'm not going to read that. Oh, there's a good verse for me. God, I claim that verse. I want you to give it to me. That's not the heart of Esther. The heart of Esther is one that says, I'm in this mess. And we're going to see next week and in the following story, Esther's heart on display, her broken heart, her, her desire for the things of God, even though God's not even mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once his name is really mentioned. And yet he's all over it. So let me ask you this morning, young men, young women, you may have been used, you may have been abused, you may have had a mess in your life, but can I tell you that God says that he is the king, that any king, any person that's hurt, he sits on the throne. Will you trust him? Will you trust his ways and his words over your own? And if you do that, he says he'll save us in his timing. You may not get what you want. It may not be the salvation you wanted to go down, but he will save us from ourselves and from the world and the corruption that we're in. And we can have peace to live in it and serve him in the midst of it, even though it seems so off. See, that's the story of Esther. It couldn't be more relevant than today. 